So good morning. Ask Brother TJ to read our text for the day. It's in John chapter 11. Finishing out John chapter 11, starting at verse 45. Brother TJ, if you would read 45 to 56, please. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performed many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take our take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, the text that's before us, Lord, it helps us to see and ask the same question that the Pharisees and the chief priests and the Sadducees asked, what are we going to do with you? Will we believe? Will we reject? Will we love? Will we hate? God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill our hearts now. And in this time, Lord, in this encounter with your word, that you would do a great work in our hearts, God. Help us to see you, Lord, and feel your love. Help us to see you, Lord, and see your glory. In all your glory, Lord Jesus. Just pray your Holy Spirit would use your word now, Lord. Draw us deeper and closer to you, all for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is the I am. He is, said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. Last time we saw, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Lazarus has suffered, died, and been raised from the dead to demonstrate the love of God and show his glory and the glory of his son, Jesus Christ. Lazarus was raised by the all-powerful word of God when Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. And he did. Walked right out of that tomb. 
He walks out of the tomb and many people see it and they're amazed. Some believe in Jesus. And some run to tell the Pharisees what he had done. The tattletales. <laughs> they ran to tell the Pharisees what he had done. And what happens next are the decisions and actions that finally brought Jesus to his execution and death on the cross. A decree of death that is ultimately for our good and to show us the glory of God. And so we see there in verses 45 through 47, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus has done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. They said, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. we got a real problem. This is getting out of control. The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So as usual, the Jews are divided about the Lord Jesus. A number of them who had witnessed the raising of Lazarus from the tomb believed in him. And it's interesting that these were likely some of the same ones who earlier in chapter 10 picked up stones in the temple to kill him. They're very fickle. They're kind of going back and forth with this all the time. They, they don't really, doesn't seem like they can get their head straight with what, what to do with Jesus. At that moment in the temple, their enmity was subdued. Uh, well, now here, after they see Lazarus raised, I'm sorry, their enmity is subdued. Their hostility was discarded, at least temporarily. Some of them had believed. Others went to tell the Pharisees what he had done. Most probably they were the spies spying out the land. Where is Jesus? Come report to us what you see. And their motive in reporting these things, they were enemies of the Lord. And they certainly were trying to inflame the wrath and rage against him in their report. Now, I looked at that and I thought, wow, how amazing the hardness of our hearts can be. They just saw a man raised from the dead. One who they were there mourning for. Apparently. They just saw him walk out of the tomb. And they go and report to the Pharisees. What has happened so that they might put him to death. How hard the heart of man can be. Even the miracle of raising someone from the dead doesn't persuade them. That reminded me of Luke chapter 16 and the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Some of you might know that and remember that. Luke chapter 16. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple, fine linen, who had feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. 
He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Hell is not a place where we're going to be partying with our good time buddies. He's crying out for mercy. Just a little dip of water to cool this heat. Just a, just a little dip of water on my tongue. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner are bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. This is where it all connected for me as I was reading it. Because there's Lazarus, the same name, right? It's Lazarus, same name, raised from the dead. If, if someone will go to them from the dead, they will repent, he says. Abraham said to you, to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And that is exactly what just happened. Lazarus, raised from the dead, did not convince them. And we're the same way, aren't we? We pray often, oh God, if you'll just show them a sign. Oh God, just show me a sign. I'll believe then or they'll believe then. When all along, we have the full word of God right here in our hands. This is what we need. We don't need signs and wonders and visions in the sky and all these things. We need God's word and we need to believe it. Let it soak into our hearts and minds. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, they do not hear God's word. They're not going to believe even if someone should rise from the dead. And so it is with many whose hearts today are hardened against God. It's only the power of the Holy Spirit that can break through their hardness of unbelief. Not even seeing the dead raised will convince them. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, break through their unbelief. Take out that heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. They would trust and believe and walk with the Lord. Be saved. So we pray for others. We pray a great work of the Holy Spirit would happen in their lives. Show them the love and kindness that Jesus demonstrated. And we also should show the love and kindness that Jesus demonstrated to the many sinners he was known to be friends with. Jesus was known to be a friend of sinners. It is the work of God in our hearts and his love and kindness shown through us that will melt their hearts of stone. If there's any hope for them at all. Verse 47, you see the chief priests 
Now, the chief priests were, in all probability, Sadducees. We know that the high priest was in Acts chapter 5, verse 17. We see that. Now, the Pharisees were their theological opponents. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they didn't like each other. That's putting it lightly. I mean, they, they didn't hang out with each other on weekends for fellowship. <laughs> they, didn't, they, didn't, they had very opposing theological views, especially in the, the view of the resurrection. I can say that the, the cheesy joke, you know, the Sadducees didn't believe in the res resurrection. That's why they're sad, you see. So they're Sadducees. They did fight over this. They were, you didn't laugh, but that's okay. You can smile. So they're sad, you see, and they would fight all the time. They had theological differences. They really hated each other bitterly. Yet in this evil work of persecuting the Lord Jesus, they buried all those differences. And they eagerly joined together in common purpose to kill Jesus. And it's interesting also how all the ones who hate each other are now kind of like good time buddies in their effort against Jesus, Herod and Pilate, the Jewish and Roman leaders at the time also despise each other. They didn't like to hang out with each other either. But hey, when it comes to this Jesus guy, we got to do something. So let's let's put our heads together on this and let's let's take care of it. It's also a common thing to see in our culture today. You know, often we who hate and oppose each other. Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, Catholics, Baptists, you know, Islam, all this stuff. We hate each other, but when we have a common enemy, boy, we get together. And it was the case then, and it is still the case today. As I read this also, I was reminded of some echoes from Psalm chapter 2. It says, why do the nation, nations rage and the people's plot, a vain, plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. All the high powers of the earth come together against God and against the son, Jesus Christ. There's unity in their hatred towards the Lord God Almighty. Did God scare that? Oh boy, they're all ganging up on me. How does God react to that? He who sits in the heavens laughs. Ha 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 ha. That's funny. You guys are, you guys think you're so powerful. Ha 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 ha. I can't do the, I don't have the right laugh for that. I hire some stand in to do that. I don't have the deep belly laugh, but God's just laughing. Ha ha ha. You guys are nothing. He laughs. God laughs. Did you know God laughs? He's not this, uh, you know, guy up in the clouds with lightning bolts ready to just throw lightning bolts down at us all the time, like me. See, they always sin. He laughs at them. God does laugh. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise and be warm, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear 
and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. And so now they're gathered together, these Pharisees and Sadducees, the chief priests. Jesus had done many miracles. They couldn't deny it. They even said he's done many miracles. We can't deny it. The multitudes had seen it, and they're all going after Jesus. And from their perspective, the chief priests and the Sadducees, this, this is a deeply grave situation. We're in big trouble here. The Passover is coming. Jesus is coming to the Passover. He always does. The crowds were going to gather and the crowds were going to go after him. They're going to believe in Jesus. They're going to follow him. If more and more people believe in Jesus, then the Roman Empire, which really rules the Jewish nation at that time, they're going to come crashing down on the little bit of freedom and autonomy that Israel has. And they're going to destroy the temple. That's why I said they're going to take away our place and our nation. They're going to destroy the temple. They're going to take away the nation. Because why? Why? Because there's a growing sense that Jesus could be the long-awaited king of Israel. And if the number of people swell, there'll be the Zionist frenzy that claims sovereignty for the state of Israel over and against Rome. And Rome will just crush that as they have done again and again and again. So these guys are terrified right now. They're going to take away our place. They're going to take away our nation. Everything's going to be ruined. And that's what the Pharisees and the chief priests say to the council. So now, Jesus is not just this minor blasphemer who needs to be stoned. He's a threat to the existence of the very nation of Israel itself. That's how they see this now. One who came to save is feared as the destroyer. Ironically, but not, less than 40 years after this, the Roman Empire, the Roman army did come and they destroyed Jerusalem. They burned the temple and they scattered the nation once again. It happened. God can make the designs of his enemies work together for the good of his people. Think about that. God can make the designs of his enemies work together for the good of his people. And cause the wrath of men to praise him. In days of trouble, brothers and sisters, days of rebuke, Days of blasphemy, which we are certainly in. We who believe may rest patiently in the Lord, have hope. The very things that at one time seemed to hurt us or are likely to hurt us shall prove in the end to be for our good, for our gain. So we rest patiently in the hope of the Lord. In our times of trouble. Verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. You're all ignorant. 
I paraphrase, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, in response to this threat, Caiaphas, who's the high priest, he has this word to say. And what we're going to hear in a moment is that this word was not ultimately his word, but God's word. In other words, he rebukes them and then says, here's the solution. Listen up. Kill him. Very simple. Kill him. Better that one should die so the nation won't. We kill him so that the Romans won't kill us. We substitute Jesus for us. This man, Jesus, must die. Forget about his miracles. Forget about his teachings, the beauty of his character. His life is a perpetual danger to our privileges. Kill him is the solution. Now, verse 51. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Now, there is much more meaning here than what Caiaphas intended. And I want us to dig deeper into this because it ties back to what we've been seeing in the, ra the raising of Lazarus and the suffering that Mary and Martha had to go through and Lazarus went through and dying, being raised from the dead. Even the decree of Caiaphas, the death of our Lord, all things are of God. Acts 4, 26. It's a repeat of Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly this in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Verse 28 of Acts. Chapter 4, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's Acts chapter 4, verse 28. Think about that. Everything that happened to Jesus in his suffering, in his death, Herod and Pilate coming together against him, the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming together against him, all of these evils that came against the Lord Jesus were in God's hand and his plan, and he had predestined them to take place. It had been decreed from in the eternal counsels of the Godhead that Christ should die for the children of God. When Caiaphas advanced his proposal, he was but a link in the chain which brought that decree to pass. This was not his intention, his motive was, and so he was justly guilty. It reminds me of Joseph's words to his brothers in Genesis chapter 50. When his brothers discovered he was alive, remember Joseph? His brothers threw him in a pit. Now, don't do that to your brother. 
<laughs> All right. As much as he's annoying you, which Joseph, you can read the stories. The kid was annoying. Okay. He was prideful. He's like, hey, look at this coat and all this stuff. And dad gave me the coat to give you one. You guys are going to bow down before me, by the way. I had a dream about it. So annoying. I mean, who is this guy? And he taught, he's like, you know, bothering them and stuff. And so they're like, okay, we're going to take care of this dude. We're just going to throw him in this pit. We're tired of him. Right? So don't throw your brothers in a pit. Joseph's thrown in a pit. He's sold into slavery in Egypt. He doesn't see his family for years and years and years. They put him in prison. Like, so he, he, he finds favor in Potiphar's eyes, who was his master. Then all kinds of bad stuff happens. He tries to do the right thing. All kinds of bad stuff happens. They put him in prison. He's like, God, I'm just trying to do the right thing. I'm in jail. For years and years and years, he suffered. Horribly suffered. <clears throat> But he says this when his brothers discovered that he was alive. As for you, you meant evil against me. So they're all there. The brothers, they realize, oh, this is Joseph. He did get them back a little bit. You read that story. He messes with them a little bit. But he tells them ultimately this. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And in this, we can see the purposes of God in our sufferings and struggles of life, brothers and sisters. Now, I want to dig into that even more deeply now. And my prayer is that we will find comfort and peace and hope in our trials, knowing that God allows them and uses them for good. God did not just turn this national crisis for Israel's good and for our good. It's not that it was birthed and thrown and God just sees it and catches it and turns it for good. God was in it from the start, planning it for good. Notice carefully what John says about Caiaphas's words. Caiaphas says in verse 50, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And then John says something amazing in verse 51. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied. He prophesied. In other words, God brought these words to his mind. God put them there. And God has a meaning. At one level, these are Caiaphas's words with his meaning. At another level, these are God's words with his meaning. The point I'm making here is that these are the words that sealed Jesus's death. This was his death sentence. These words are Jesus's death warrant. Caiaphas wanted Jesus dead and out of the way, and so he spoke these words. God wanted Jesus dead and risen. 
and reigning forever. And so he spoke these words. Caiaphas prophesied, that is, he spoke God's words. And God said, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. God said that too. Better that Jesus die. Better. Better than any other plan in the whole universe. That is what God said. Therefore, the death of Jesus was not mainly a tragic set of events which God turned for our good. It was a loving set of events which God planned for our good. Notice the difference. Think about that. Let that just hit your heart. God himself served the death warrant on his own son. He didn't just predict it. He unleashed it. This word of prophecy tracked Jesus down into Gethsemane and put him under arrest. There was no escape. This was the word of God. It is better that he die. Now, this, this is a deep, deep spiritual truth that took my breath away and brought me to tears as I was writing this song. And I can't even describe for you what I felt when this just hit me. It literally took my breath away. I've known these truths intellectually for many years. But for some reason, somehow, it just struck deeply. I was struck deeply by them as I pondered this more and more in my preparations this week. I have struggled and suffered greatly in my soul over the past several years. Some of you know, probably don't even know. And as I've walked that valley of deep darkness, I've known the truth of Romans 8, that God will work that suffering for good in my life. I've known that. I turn that over in my mind over and over again. God is working all these things for good. I thought of it as God catching those bad things and sufferings and turning them for good in me. But as I saw this text and I understood it more and more, I understood that God doesn't just catch these things and turn them for good, he planned them and allowed them and initiated them, and they are from him. So forgive me if I don't get the words exactly right here. This, to me, is a very deep and mysterious aspect of God that I don't fully know how to express with words. God doesn't just turn these sufferings in my life or your life for good. He is in them from the start, planning them for your good and my good. 
this truth utterly breaks me. We work so diligently and with such force and energy to build lives for ourselves that are seemingly good and comfortable and right and true. There's nothing wrong with that. And in doing that, we, we make ourselves out to be little gods in a way. The God, the great I am, will have nothing to do with that. He will have none of that. There is one God, the great I am. He's not going to have anything to do with that. He crushes all those little gods to show us his own greatness and glory. Our possessions, our toys, our Xboxes and Switches and Fortnite accounts and nice cars and all these things, houses and guns and all these things that we like accumulate for ourselves. You know what yours are. Our finances, our reputation. Our self-righteousness. Oh, we got a lot of that. There's a lot of that in here. If you're honest with yourself, you know it. Even our families, our fathers, our mothers, husbands, wives, children, they're all allowed and planned in some ways at various times to be crushed. I'm going to take a sea and drown your reputation, Ryan. I'm going to take a strong wind and just blow that halo right off your head. I'm going to crush it. Because you can't see my glory when you got that right in your face. God allows those things, even plans those things, so that we will feel his love and see his glory in our lives. How do I know that? I know it from what we just saw earlier in chapter 11. Jesus loved Lazarus. So knowing he was sick, he waited two more days to go to him until he was sure he was dead. Jesus loved Lazarus and he let him suffer and die. It was his plan to do that. He planned it. He planned for Lazarus to be sick then and to die then. It didn't just happen and Jesus was like, well, this is convenient. Now we can get this thing rolling. Lucky that happened. That is not how it goes. And when God allows this kind of suffering, we are broken and we fall to our knees. And it's in that time that we look up to see his glory and feel his great love. That's when we see his glory and feel his great love the most. It's a glory that could not have been seen and a love that is not easily felt when our thoughts and our affections are directed and centered in our little gods made by our own hands and our hearts and our minds. Oh, we have a mountain of idols in our hearts. 
and it clutters our vision, blurs our vision. We can't see clearly the glory of Christ with all this mountain of idols in our hearts and our minds and all around us. So God is pleased to crush those things. This theology of suffering gets us to the heart and center of the gospel and our Christian faith. You see here that Jesus is the substitute. In the mind of Caiaphas, the substitution was this. We kill Jesus so the Romans won't kill us. We substitute Jesus for ourselves. In the mind of God, the substitution was this. I will kill my son so I don't have to kill you. Kill my son so I don't have to kill you. You. Me. God substitutes Jesus for his enemies. God killed Jesus. It's all this debate. Who killed Jesus? Was it the Romans? Was it the Jews? Was it the Pharisees? The Sadducees? No, God killed Jesus. The perfect and righteous son suffered for us. Isaiah 53 makes it clear. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Don't think, no, I'm not like that. I'm pretty good. I got this figured out. No, all we like sheep have gone astray. We all turn to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Isaiah 53 verse 10 makes it very clear. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. God smote him. God crushed him. This is the very center of our Christian faith. God substituted Jesus for us. Someone might even ask you, well, what's the Christian faith all about? Well, substitution is a good word for that. It's a good word for that. God substituted Jesus for us. Jesus was put to death so the children of God all over this world, including you and me, would be gathered into one and have eternal life with God. The good shepherd gave his life for the sheep, John chapter 10. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, Ephesians 5. This was the plan of God. God's plans never fail. So my hope and my prayer is that we will be strong in the face of hard times and seeming defeat. Because God is not simply watching and waiting to turn it all for good. 
He is in it from the beginning, planning it for your good. From the outside, the words of Caiaphas simply look like a hostile human plan that would bring the Messiah to ruin. From the inside, John shows us that the very words of execution were not the words of Caiaphas, but God's words. And God had a totally different plan for these events that anyone could see. And so it will be in your life. Again and again and again. You will see the outside. It will look hostile and destructive. Inside, God is at work for your good. So let's not judge by appearances. Let's trust the sovereign planning of God for your good. He gets many victories through our apparent defeats. So when that failing comes, when that stumbling happens, when your heart is pierced to the core, God planned that for your good. Look to him. God, help me see your plan for my good in this because it hurts so bad. And I want us also to see that the gospel of Christ is invincible. We have a solid rock to stand on. Thank you for choosing that hymn. <laughs> a solid confidence in the invincible success of the cross. It's not merely an offer dependent upon human choice for its victory. It's a power that cannot fail, and it is intended in its purpose to gather God's elect from all over the world. The design of the death of Jesus should give you an intense and personal sense that you are loved particularly and personally, especially. If you've trusted Christ, he gathered you to himself. He chose you. He bought you. He brought you in particular. Christ died for the nation of Israel and not for the nation only, but to gather into one the children of God. He pursued me. He found me. He gathered me to himself and he did this by his blood. You say with the Apostle Paul, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What you mean is he didn't just offer me love. He pursued me with love. He conquered me with love. He awakened me with love. He satisfies me with love. And now I live trembling and joyful in the love of God what you mean from your soul and so thank you jesus 
Thank you for your greatness and the wideness of your mercy. Thank you, Jesus. The door is open. I beg you today, come to Jesus today, right now. Feel his great love for you and know that you are saved and cared for in him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for these words. God, I pray they would sink deeply into our hearts and souls today. And that no matter what comes at us in this world, the highest victories, the lowest depths of suffering, we will know that you are in it all. You have planned it all for our good. And may you, God, the God of hope, Fill us with all joy and peace in believing that we may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We pray this in your great name, Jesus. Amen.